Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series featuring expert insight on contemporary religious and political issues. In this episode, Yale alum Emily Judd interviews Professor Yi Jan Lin about government, gender, and slavery in the Christian Bible. Professor Lin criticizes the use of the Bible to defend immigration policies. Fulfilling the law and loving is that what we're doing with separating immigrant children from their families? I would say no, that is not. She explains how Mary, the mother of Jesus, can be interpreted as a feminist figure. She's more prominent than any male member in Jesus' household. So, for example, you can see iconography of her or stories about her um, or ideas about praying to her that are very powerful that put her in a place of authority. And Professor Lynn discusses complex slavery metaphors in the Christian scriptures. I wouldn't say that there is any advocacy of slavery in the New Testament, but there's an seems like a complicit or complacent acceptance of the fact. Well, welcome, Professor Lin, to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So the New Testament found its way into American politics historically, and today it's also finding its way into American politics. When the Trump administration came under criticism for separating immigrant children from their families at the border, Attorney General Jeff Sessions referenced Paul's letter to the Romans. Sessions cited Romans 13, which says, quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established, end quote. As a Christian and a biblical scholar, what's your response to the argument that immigration laws are God-ordained? So on the face of it, the text seems pretty clear, right? So if God has put this authority above us, then we should be subject to the authority. And there's nothing that is an authority that's not put in place except by God, right? So that seems pretty clear, And it has been used kind of as this rod for folks who would resist or be activists or rebel. Um, But then you have to take into account who is writing and what has happened to him and also the figure of Jesus himself. What does it mean to be subject? Could we nuance that a bit more? Paul himself was put into prison. So how do we... He was breaking some laws. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He certainly was agitating people in the way the Roman Empire did not like. And in fact, later on in this passage, um, Paul makes clear, if you disobey, the authority doesn't discipline in vain. It comes with the sword. And what's ironic is that it's basically accepted that Paul himself was subject to the sword in Rome and killed. So... What does he mean by being subject to authority? Does it mean that you can't resist at all? I don't think so, because he himself was imprisoned and punished. Um, Jesus himself was taken and crucified. I mean, these are essential parts of their story, is this um, mission and then martyrdom. So then how do we understand um this is it to be subject to but not obedient is it to be subject to and accepting consequences that's one way way to read this passage another way to read it is within the context of the entire letter within Paul's life um, and to read it to a specific community 
in this uh, particular one in Rome. Um, and then also to look further on in the passage. So in verse 9 of the same chapter, in verse 10, Paul says that love thy neighbor is the entire law and f- loving is fulfilling the law. And so there you have an even big picture, a bigger picture way of looking at this passage. So I think, again, there's no easy way to interpret this away. Um, I think People have tried to change the verb subject to mean various things rather than obedience. I think, I think you can't excuse away that part of the verse, but at the same time, it's more complicated than it seems because of Paul's own person, his own experience, Christ's, Jesus' own experience, and then also what the passage goes on to say, which is loving is fulfilling the law. So would fulfilling the law and loving is that what we're doing with separating immigrant children from their families? I would say no, that is not. Now, turning to a different theme in the New Testament, gender, feminist interpretations of the New Testament address the role of women, particularly Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some feminist theologians critique Mary's depiction for placing a woman in the traditional maternal role, But other feminists applaud Mary's portrayal because they say that she didn't need a male partner to conceive Jesus. Can Mary be interpreted as a feminist icon? Yes, I think she definitely can. I think the different aspects you mentioned are all part of a very complex understanding of Mary that can be read in many, many, many different ways. So on the one hand, you do have the stereotypical pure virgin, right, as versus the whore of Babylon or as versus a a woman caught in adultery. That sort of, of course, there's redemption in that story. But there is the stereotypical pure virgin who is obedient, who submits to God's calling to bear a child, all of these things maternal, right, Um, fulfilling her role in that particular way. But it can be read in a very different way um, so that you see her as a very powerful figure without, as you said, um, a male human counterpart that's her equal. She's a very visible or uh, felt presence within um, the Gospels, and she's more prominent than any male member in Jesus' household. Um, So there are those ways to uh, emphasize what's powerful, what's um, feminist about her figure. And then she also has grown to be a complex and powerful figure in different portrayals of her in um, the traditions of Mary that have grown out of these stories as well. So I think you can see all the different ways of interpreting her through different uh, interpretations of her outside of the Gospels. So, for example, you can see iconography of her or stories about her um, or ideas about praying to her that are very powerful, that put her in a place of authority, put her in a place of of power and agency uh, for those who are underrepresented. Um, So the Magnificat, for example, is often quoted as representing the oppressed and the underrepresented, and that comes from the mouth of Mary and Luke. Um, You can think of the Virgen um, de Guadalupe, who is... um, who has a whole history of iconography of Mary, and that is a very powerful figure, and that's been used in political arenas. So, for example, for the United um, Farm Workers Movement in the 1960s with Cesar Chavez and the Chicano Movement. Um, so there are lots of different ways to see this particular figure, and I think that's great. I think it's fascinating to look at all the different facets that are possible looking at her story and how it's grown. 
And there's a modern test that actually measures the representation of women in literary works and films. It's called the Bechdel test, Mm -hmm. and its criteria measures whether a work has an active female presence. You applied it to the Gospels. What did you find? So this term is named after the cartoonist Alison Bechdel, and she described this first in a comic strip that she created um, that's called Dykes to Watch Out For. And basically the test is to see if any in any work there are two women, usually two named women, talking to each other about something besides a male. And so if you do the Bechdel test just on the whole Bible, it's pretty sad. Um, <laughs> on the Gospels, we have two instances, I think, that we could point to. One is in Mark. Um, At the end of Mark, when the women are discussing who's going to roll away the stone from the tomb, so they're together and we know who they are. The other one, which I mentioned briefly just before, is in Luke, when Mary and Elizabeth meet, and Mary has uh, just been told she is going to conceive, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and they meet. And that's when Mary delivers the Magnificat, and Elizabeth welcomes her into her home. So that's a powerful moment, um, and one of only two within the entire New Testament. Another sensitive, controversial subject in the New Testament that it addresses is slavery, and it's addressed in problematic ways. Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, quote, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul sends a slave who is a Christian back to his master. How should we interpret biblical passages that seem to advocate for slavery? Yes, so this is a complicated issue. And one of the things uh, you mentioned is... uh, that verse in Mark, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. And it's interesting you say slave of all, because usually translators will take doulos, the Greek, and translate it as servant. And it's been softened in our English translations, usually consistently across the board to say servant, but a more correct reading would be to use slave. And that is quite a triggering and sensitive word to use, especially in the United States with our history. Um, And so one thing to recognize when you read this, and this is not at all to excuse it, but that in the Roman Empire, basically everything operated on a slave economy. There were thousands of slaves, and they were used in households um, everywhere. They were part of everything, um, almost at the heart. Would Jesus's household have slaves? So Jesus is not coming from a wealthy household. He wouldn't... um, But there were definitely, you have mentions of slaves, um, slaves belonging to leaders in the area, slaves belonging to um, political figures um, in Palestine all over, right? So it's very easy to see how something that is so part and parcel of everyday life is going to be used metaphorically all the time, right? So you would, to, to, to understand authority, to understand obedience, all of these things, loyalty, you could use the slave metaphor because it's it's at hand everywhere. Um, and it's almost at the heart of the ancient context where these works are coming from. And so it is very much an accepted fact of life in these writings. Um, and I'm not saying that excuses the use of that metaphor, the pain uh, of the truth of that metaphor and what it's based on in reality. Um, I wouldn't say that there is any advocacy of slavery in the New Testament, but there's an seems like a complicit or complacent acceptance of the fact. Um, In Philemon, that's a very interesting passage. So we do have 
Paul writing to Philemon, asking him to take back um, Onesimus, the slave, and take him back into his household, he does hint heavily that he should set him free. That is one reading of it, to say, take him back, and for my sake, right, to let him be free. That's one reading of the letter of Philemon. So actually, in the history of reception, this passage has been used on opposite sides of the argument for and against slavery. So it can be used very much as saying, look, Paul didn't have a problem with slavery. Slavery is part of his world. He didn't say anything against it. And in fact, Jesus never mentions the issue, right? And does not teach on it. And so we can accept it that that's perfectly acceptable for our um, country, our nation in, in the U.S. now. The other way to read it is to say Paul is asking for Philemon to do the right thing, which is to set his slave free. Um, so again, it's complex. There's no um, easy way to read this. And I would say, yes, it is problematic to have slavery and slave metaphor used throughout, and it's been used quite harmfully throughout American history. Um and I think we have to, you can't look at it um, and just ignore that. But I don't think there's an easy answer. What would you say to Christians that believe the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament? That is to say that the Gospels completely replace the Hebrew Bible. I would say that it is very important to remember that at the time of the writing of the different texts of the New Testament, Scripture is Hebrew Bible. There is no other thing being called scripture. And so if you want to put yourself in the mind of Paul, in the mind of the gospel writers, when they say it is written, or when they say the scriptures say, they're not talking about the New Testament because of course they're writing it, right? So they are talking about Hebrew Bible. And you can't have the New Testament without the Hebrew Bible, and it's unintelligible, or without Septuagint, and it's unintelligible without Jewish scripture. It really... Um, you, you can't take out all the quotations and all the cultural allusions and all of those things and have something that, it's, that is intelligible. Um, I have one friend who jokingly says you could call, instead of calling it the New Testament, you can call it, you know, the Christian appendix to the Hebrew Bible. Um, and in, in some sense, it is. Uh, of course, you have to acknowledge that the New Testament and Christian Bible on its own has become its own thing. And there's a history of tradition, of course, and faith that has followed it. But it is very important to remember the historical big picture, which is that it, it came out of a Jewish context. It came out of the earliest communities were Jewish Christians, and this is how they understood, and their scripture is the Jewish scripture and nothing else. And so um, it's really, really important to remember that um, and to remember a perspective outside of the Christian perspective so that we can combat things like anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, because some of these arguments um, that we find in the Gospels about washing or ritual, um, those are intra-community discussions within a Jewish community. And so to come from a hundreds of years removed Christian, non-Jewish perspective and read them, we miss out on so much if we don't understand that it is actually arising from a Jewish context and resting upon the understanding that um, Jewish scriptures are scripture. And Jesus was obviously a Jewish yes, man. That's right. I'm sure that he was reading the Hebrew scriptures right. from... and quoting. And, yeah, yes, and teaching exactly. from, yes. So um, I, as a Christian myself, I find it interesting to read the Old Testament and think about, or the Hebrew Bible, yeah. and think about, oh, this is 
is this what Jesus was reading? It might not be the same yeah, translation, yeah. but same stories. Yeah. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us today yeah. for the podcast. It thank was a really you. interesting discussion. Thank you. It was great to be here.